Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Tuesday. Hope everyone is having a wonderful week so far. Today's episode is brought to you by Good Ranchers. They've got completely American-made craft beef, better than organic chicken, ships right to your front door, makes your life so much easier. We love Good Ranchers. Check them out at goodranchers.com slash Allie. All right, today we are talking about one of my favorite topics, and that is the family, and specifically why having a family and having children is objectively good and important. But we're also going to talk about overpopulation and this idea that it's actually irresponsible to have children. And Elon Musk actually just tweeted something. I didn't know he was going to tweet it, but it fits right in line with what we are talking about today. He said this. He said, we should be much more worried about population collapse. He said, UN projections are utter nonsense. Just multiply last year's births by life expectancy. Given downward trend in birth rate, that is best case unless reversed. And of course, I believe that he is on to something. I think overpopulation, as we will discuss thoroughly today, is not the problem that we are facing. I think the bigger problem that we are facing, um, not just practically when we're talking about the consequences of reduced uh, a reduced number of births but also culturally socially morally I want to talk about what this says about what we believe about children and about human nature as a society because as the statistics show us people are having less children and it is due to the priorities that we have as a country which I think links back to what we believe about human nature and what we even believe about God himself. Now, this is not something that was being argued even 50 years ago, 20 years ago, that having children is not something that's super important. But this is something that must be argued for and defended today because a large percentage of Americans and the West as a whole does not actually believe that having kids is important. There was this New Yorker cartoon that I saw being circulated on Instagram that one of you shared with me. It was a couple watering plants, and one of them asked as the cartoon caption read, do you think we'll regret having two plants and a bucket of pebbles instead of children one day? And then the caption to this cartoon said, probably not. And then there were hundreds of comments that were agreeing with this, of course, laughing about the fact that, oh, you just need more than two plants. Having plants instead of children is great. And this is a burgeoning trend. We've talked about it before. People are beginning to use uh, this term child-free instead of childless. There's a book called Child Free by Choice that talks about this kind of movement. There is also a huge antinatalism push that claims to exist for the sake of the world, for the sake of the common good for the sake of the climate. And according to Pew Research, only 34% of Americans today believe that society is better off if people prioritize getting married and having children. 64% believe, according to this Pew study, that society is just as well off if they have other priorities ahead of starting a family. White evangelicals holding down the fort as the only religious group with a majority of people who believe that society is better off with uh, starting a family as a priority. But it's not a large majority of white evangelicals. It's only 56%. Only 50% of Republicans believe that this should be a top priority, and of course, a much smaller percentage of Democrats. Um, But this is yet another reason why I I don't 
care really about political labels. Yes, I vote Republican, but the party as a whole just isn't nearly conservative enough for me. It's weak and in many ways it's functionally progressive. So I don't really align with either political party, the things that I talk about, while they do tend to align with conservative philosophy, to me, they're pre-political. They are biblical issues that have become political and cultural. That's why I talk about the things that I do. I am in that smaller percentage of Americans who believes that America is drastically worse off when marriage and children are not a top priority. And this episode is about why, both theologically and a little bit practically, um, why I believe those things. Now, I can't expect to convince non-Christians on this subject, and maybe I, I don't even really care to because there is obviously work to do among my own cohort, among people who identify loosely as evangelicals, people who profess to be Christians. And so I want to do this from a biblical perspective. Um, I want my fellow Christians to be thoroughly convinced of this, but we really have to kind of back up and look at where this idea of antinatalism and not having kids for the sake of the common good and sake of the universe, where that actually comes from. Uh, but first, let's continue to set this up with a look at where our views are right now as Americans. Another study by Pew Research found that the share of non-parents under the age of 50 who say that they are very likely never to have kids is up from 2018. So 32% say today that they're very likely never to have kids versus only 26% four years ago. 44% today are saying that they are not too likely or not at all likely to have children. 44% of people under the age of 50. As for reasons non-parents choose not to have children today, the study says 56% say that they just don't want to. So it's not for medical or financial reasons. They just don't feel like having kids. According to a CDC study from last year, the U.S. birth rate fell to the lowest point in a century, dropping by 4% in 2020, the biggest single year decrease in almost 50 years. UN data shows that worldwide birth rates have declined dramatically. The UN predicts that will continue to, to drop. And of course, that is um, a desire of the UN, which is why I think they simultaneously project, as Elon Musk said, that the world is just going to be over, you know, over encumbered, overpopulated. Um, the UN sees overpopulation as a huge detriment to the alleviation of poverty and the protection of the climate. Uh, we hear this from people as we will talk about more in um, in a few minutes. We hear this from people like Jane Goodall at the World Economic Forum or Bill Gates or the many sophisticated academics and climate scientists who blame human misery on the existence of too many humans. And so let's examine that claim as someone, you know, as someone who also wants the alleviation of misery and the mitigation of poverty and despair and all of these things. Let's look at that assertion that overpopulation is really our biggest problem, which is what we keep hearing from the intelligentsia and have heard for a very long time. But before we start digging into that, let me tell you about our first sponsor for the day. Talk about the alleviation of misery. That is why Relief Band exists. So if you are someone who struggles with nausea, either uh, because of morning sickness or motion sickness or maybe chemotherapy or anxiety, and you are looking for a natural way to relieve that feeling, you need to look into Relief Band. 
Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free. It's non-drowsy, provides all-natural, long-lasting relief with zero side effects. So how it works is that Relief Band stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you are sick. This really works. My sister-in-law has always had motion sickness and she started using Relief Band a while ago and it has helped her so much. It's really a game changer. They also just released a new model, Relief Band Sport. The Sport is waterproof, has an extended battery life and can even attach to your Apple or Android watch. What a cool invention. They've got an exclusive offer just for the relatable audience. If you go to reliefband.com, use promo code Allie, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no question ask 30 day money back guarantee so head to r-e-l-i-e-f-b-a-n-d.com use my promo code ally for 20 percent off plus free shipping reliefband.com promo code ally so the assertion that overpopulation is our biggest problem is actually a theory it's not a proven fact and as i will try to argue it's actually a myth There is no actual science supporting the idea that more people are a hindrance to ecological protection or economic development. This warning of overpopulation first came from an economist and a clergyman named Thomas Malthus in 1789. He wrote that the abundance and production of food in a society leads to more population growth. But then population growth leads to less food Thus, he argued that if human beings continue to multiply, societies would be thrown into poverty and famine and disease and misery. And this is often referred to as the Malthusian catastrophe. Early evolutionary biologists were influenced by Malthus, including Charles Darwin. It was after reading Malthus that Darwin is said to have developed his theory of natural selection. As you guys know, this is the idea that the strongest and the most adaptable organisms are most likely to endure and to reproduce. These theories also lay the groundwork for eugenics in the 19th century. So Francis Galton, who is Darwin's cousin, who was Darwin's cousin, invented the term eugenics in 1883. He wrote a book called Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development, in which he argued for the importance of creating a human race, quote, good in stock and hereditarily endowed with noble qualities. The Encyclopedia of Genocide notes this about Galton as a pioneer of eugenics. So it says this, eugenics is a term coined in 1883 by Francis Galton, an English scientist and half-cousin of Charles Darwin. Galton defined eugenics as a science that would give the more suitable races a better chance of prevailing over the less suitable. Galton came close to justifying genocide, asserting that there exists a sentiment for the most for the most part quite unreasonable against the gradual extinction of an inferior race. So he's saying that people in his view rationally are against um are against uh, dr- uh driving people who you consider inferior into extinction. 
eugenicists, the uh, encyclopedia goes on to say, would be strong supporters of Nazi racial policy. And many contemporary eugenics advocates continue to justify genocide. And then it goes on to say how these ideas influence the ideology of uh, Nazism and the extermination of different kinds of ethnic and religious minorities throughout history. So not only did uh, did eugenics closely link itself with Nazism, it was also influential on the pioneers of birth control and abortion in the United States, namely Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. And actually, it was Sanger and American eugenicists who are said to have influenced parts of the Nazi ideology of the superiority of the Aryan race. In a 1939 letter to Clarence Gamble, Sanger explains the underlying motive that was behind uh, what was called the Negro Project. She said, quote, We don't want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, Margaret Sanger says, and the African-American minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. That is the founder of Planned Parenthood, who, by the way, is still aborting a disproportionate number of black babies today. This is right in line with Galton's desire to turn eugenics from a kind of science to a kind of religion in which people saw the extinction of inferior kinds of people as a common good. So Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was carrying on Galton's legacy and desire through Planned Parenthood. So Malthus's theory of overpopulation influenced Darwin the pioneer of the theory of evolution and natural selection, which then influenced Francis Galton, the pioneer of eugenics, which then influenced the Nazis and other genocidal actors, as well as Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood and history's first and fiercest advocate for legal and accessible birth control. And if we want to keep drawing the line, 2014 Planned Parenthood gave the Margaret Sanger Award to Hillary Clinton for her support for, quote, abortion Rights. This is an amazing legacy, isn't it? Amazing connections. We haven't even gotten to the kicker yet. Okay, so the kicker in all of this, obviously we know that these ideas have been damaging and literally deadly, resulting in the murder of millions of ethnic and religious minorities and pre-born babies. But it is also based on a theory that has been completely debunked. So the Malthusian catastrophe This idea that overpopulation leads to food shortages and misery has been disproven. So Malthus was writing right at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in almost an exclusively agricultural age. And while the Industrial Revolution had its own problems, we know that it obviously completely changed the game for food production. So thanks to technology, mechanics, the factories that cropped up during the Industrial Revolution, the industrialization of food production, there was an abundance of food far beyond what was needed to keep the population alive. So what did that show? It showed that human beings as drivers of innovation are a credit to the world, not a debit. See, the idea that really drove Malthus was that humans are just like animals in that they are breeding indiscriminately without any thought to available resources and without the ability to change their environment. And really, Darwin's theory of natural selection held the same assumption that just like animals, since he believed that human beings are just evolved animals, human beings would need to weed out the types of humans that couldn't withstand hardship or certain environments, couldn't fend for themselves, weren't resourceful enough to survive. So he saw humans 
basically as helpless victims of the earth and of their environment being forced to adapt to it. And he and Malthus, as well as Galton, considered part of that adaptation to be the death and the extinction of people who could not adapt. Galton just thought that the extinction of people who could not adapt um, also perhaps justified genocide and mass murder, which even if he didn't intend to support those policies, that is certainly how uh, people took his ideas to their fullest extent in the 20th century. But the fact is human beings are not animals. Human beings are not helpless adapters to their environment. They have the unique ability to adapt the world to meet their needs. Hence, the invention of technology that gave us the ability to feed people more easily than ever before. That's what Malthus didn't understand, didn't realize. And it wasn't just the mechanisms of mass food production that exploded after Malthus's theories were published. The Industrial Revolution paved the way for discovery and innovation and technology that drove advancements in medicine and sanitation in the 19th and 20th uh, century that extended the average human lifespan by decades and dramatically reduced extreme poverty, especially over the last 40 years. So get this. We have far fewer people living in extreme poverty today than we did in 1820, which is remarkable considering how many more people we have on earth today. So let's, let's really understand that. According to our world in data, there were 990 million people in the world, almost 1 billion people in 1800, and almost all of them were living in extreme poverty. Today, there are almost 8 billion people in the world, and 733 million are living in extreme poverty. So we're not just talking about the percentage of people today being lower than the percentage of extremely poor people in the early 1800s. We are actually talking about the number of people being lower. That is actually stunning. That alone is enough to debunk the theory of overpopulation. So as the world population has increased, extreme poverty has decreased. That means the resources we have, including natural resources that help us provide our food uh, and water to people, as well as jobs and wealth, have done more than enough to keep up with our, our, our demand. Why? Because human-contrived innovation works. Human beings have found ways to care for themselves and each other as the population has grown exponentially. And you know what's amazing? You know what's amazing is that propaganda like the 1619 Project and all Marxist works today, which are so pervasive and influential, claim that oppression and capitalism are inextricably linked, specifically that capitalism is to blame for systems like slavery. That is exactly wrong. Capitalism, Markets, supply and demand made possible through industrialization and global trade, which rewards innovation, has been the driving force behind the reduction of suffering that is caused by extreme poverty. That doesn't mean that, for example, regimes like China uh, have not oppressed their people in the name of supply and demand. There are certainly evils that have come with the globalization of the market and are um, exporting of our own factories and manufacturing in the United States because of the demand for cheap goods. There are certainly problems innate with that. But if you were just 
Um, if you are just looking at the reduction of extreme poverty over the past, past couple of centuries, and especially over the past half century, you have the markets, you have capitalism to think for that. The growth of industry, of technology, of factories in the northern United States is what helped make obvious the irrationality of the slave-driven agricultural industry of the South. That, plus a much deeper and stronger motive, which was Christianity. So the first and second Great Awakenings, periods of revival for the Christian church, corresponded with the abolition of slavery in the West. There were some not-so-great things that came out of the Great Awakenings, like the birth of cults and denominations without a biblical foundation, but the Lord used these periods to further spread the gospel and the principles of Christianity to the world. Wilberforce, the British politician who was one of the most famous abolitionists driven by the gospel to be the spearhead of slavery abolition in the Western world, he saw his public duty and his Christian duty as inextricably intertwined. He truly embodied what we talk about so much on this podcast that politics matter because policy matters because people matter. He lived that out. And now, of course, today, Wilberforce would be castigated and condemned as a Christian nationalist by progressives because he believed that society should be shaped on biblical principles, founded on biblical principles, shaped by biblical principles, and that his job in the public sphere was to advance the cause of Christianity and to let the gospel shape policy. That was his uh, motive behind abolishing slavery or pushing for the abolition of slavery and ending the human suffering that was caused by it. He said this, quote, to live our lives and miss that great purpose we were designed to accomplish is truly a sin. It is inconceivable that we could be bored in a world with so much wrong to tackle, so much ignorance to reach, and so much misery we could alleviate. Yes and amen. He believed one of the Christian duties was to tackle wrong and to alleviate misery. Now note, he did not say that this is the only Christian duty. He is not presenting what would be the liberal social gospel in which a person's salvation is earned through social justice and achieving so-called liberation. No, that that line of thinking is actually founded upon Marx, who was influenced by Darwin and the schools of thought that got us into this whole anti-human mess in the first place. Uh, Wilberforce argued that the saving grace of the gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, and in that, we are driven uh, to give his love and his compassion to other people. That Christianity forces humans to look upon the oppression of our fellow man and to seek to relieve him from it. And Wilberforce wasn't in a vacuum. Neither uh, was slavery abolition. And what I mean by that is advancements in human rights, the dramatic decrease in extreme poverty coincided with the globalization of Christianity in the Great Awakenings and the advancement of technology and industry. The exact opposite of what we hear from academia and the political elite in the scientific community today, which is that we should derive our policies, our theories, and even our morality from Darwin and his theories. But again, what did we uncover? Darwin was influenced by Malthus, largely, not completely, but largely, whose Malthusian catastrophe has been debunked by the fact that as the human population has surged, poverty has decreased. Darwin's faulty conclusions influenced Galton, the father of eugenics, whose ideas influenced Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, and other eugenicists whose ideas helped inspire and justify the genocides of the 20th century, including the extermination of over 6 million Jews by Hitler. And of course, 
the extermination of tens of millions of wiggling, feeling, living babies inside the womb through today. And these ideas, these debunked ideas, these ideas that have led to mass slaughter, they're the foundation of the secular humanism that still guides people, influential people to this day. And we'll talk more about that in just one second. Got to tell you about our second sponsor for the day. And that is a really fun sponsor. And that is Guitar Success For You. So if you have been looking to learn a new instrument, maybe that is a New Year's resolution for you. Maybe you should consider learning the guitar. Guitar Success For You makes that really easy to do. It's a unique online monthly membership that has community, a clear path to success, and it's super affordable. Relatable listeners started this company, David and Whitney Harsh, and it is designed for beginning and returning guitarists who want to understand and enjoy making music. David has toured nationally as an award-winning Christian artist, worship leader, and guitar workshop clinician for the last 20 years, and through his decades of experience, he has discovered a new way to help you unlock the guitar. When you join this membership, you can learn at your own pace from home alongside a community of guitars, including worship leaders, hobbyists, retirees, stay-at-home moms, and more. Guitar Success for You is only $29 a month. That's less than a dollar a day and a fraction of the cost of guitar lessons. So very much worth it. Learn more and join now at guitarsuccessforyou.com. That's guitar success, the number four, the letter U, dot com. Um, join today and get five instant bonuses to help accelerate your progress. Guitarsuccessforyou.com, guitarsuccessforyou.com. Influential broadcaster David Attenborough told the BBC, in the long run, population growth has to come to an end. There are some reasons for thinking that will happen almost inevitably. Interesting. He has said similar things at the World Economic Forum. And if you want to know the significance of the World Economic Forum, I really encourage you to listen to a few past episodes, which I will link in the description of this episode. Bill Gates has said the same thing at the World Economic Forum. Jane Goodall, an environmentalist and animal rights activist, made a similar comment at the World Economic Forum. She said, quote, all of these environmental things we talk about wouldn't be a problem if there was uh, if there was the size of population that there was 500 years ago. Just to note, the world population 500 years ago was about 500 or 420 and 540 million. So that's about 6.7 billion fewer people than there are today, uh, even more than that. That It's even bigger reduction than that, I believe. Uh, A couple interesting things to note in all of this. In 2003, Bill Gates said in an interview that his father was once the head of Planned Parenthood. And the second interesting thing to note is that this is really a theme for the World Economic Forum and the people they invite. They're some of the richest and the most influential people in the world. I hate to sound conspiratorial, but it is well documented that people considered in the elite class that frequents the World Economic Forum, so we're talking Warren Buffett, George Soros, are all big donors to Planned Parenthood and other abortion organizations. Listen to this by Life News, and I'll include a link to this article. Warren Buffett's daughter, Susie, told the Chronicle of Philanthropy in 1997 that her father has always believed that population control was, quote, the biggest and most important issue. And Roger Lowenstein said in his 1995 biography that Buffett had a, quote, Malthusian dread 
that overpopulation would aggravate problems in all other areas, such as food, housing, even human survival. That's incredible. The people who are some of the biggest influences on policy today have bought into the myth of the Malthusian catastrophe that has led them to fund abortion and to warn about the dangers of overpopulation, which has manifested itself in who knows how many deadly policies. I mean, if you think that overpopulation is an existential threat and you believe it is your duty to stop it for the sake of the common good and you have all the capital and power in the world to do it, what would be your limiting principle? I mean, you don't believe in God. What would be your boundary? Obviously, they won't stop at killing babies living and squirming in their mother's wombs. Obviously, they won't stop at pushing birth control on women, which has known side effects such as the potential of breast cancer. I mean, it just makes you wonder. Is this what's behind some of the propaganda and entertainment that glorifies prolonged singleness? Is this why so many shows today show couples in their 40s with one kid who's usually a toddler? The answer is is probably, if I'm being fair, it's probably yes and no. I, I think most people don't realize the mythical dangerous ideas that influence cultural change, progressive cultural change in values. They just adopt the values and they think that they're just being evolved people. Um, and they got these values from being more quote, educated and progressive. And what they typically mean is that they like watched a Netflix show or they started following account that posts convincing memes. And that's what they mean by they got educated and they were evolved on these issues. So the culture, our entertainment, our education, our media um, is all colored with these ideas, either because they are trying to push propaganda and they believe that, you know, having just one child when you are 45 years old is better for society, or they just don't realize why they are pushing these ideas because it's just become the cultural norm. The idea today is that the responsible thing to do is to not have kids or at least to not have more than one. The fun thing to do is to not get married. The acceptable thing to do is to not have a family at all, just to live for yourself. Isn't that so freeing and liberating? And all of this is built on a farcical idea that has built a deadly ideology. But just as it was a century ago in the face of eugenics, and just as it was two centuries ago in the face of slavery, Christianity is still the antidote to this deadly madness. Christianity stands against the injustices perpetuated by secular humanism. Now, does that mean that Christians, people who profess to be Christians, haven't perpetuated injustice? Of course not. Malthus was a clergyman. Christians throughout history condoned the African slave trade. But these people were demonstrations of people who had bad theology, who professed to be Christians while failing to represent the Christianity that is so clearly represented in scripture. The first chapter of which is sufficient in deconstructing the entire edifice of the secular humanism that has justified dehumanization and genocide. First verse of the biblical canon. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then verse 27 of the first chapter of the Bible. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This establishes two principles fundamentally opposed to the havoc wreaked by perpetuators of the overpopulation myth. God created the universe. That's one. Therefore, he and he alone has the authority over it. 
while people who warn of overpopulation use this fear-mongering to justify their social engineering of society and funding of deadly policies like abortion and sterilization and assisted suicide, God has the true authority. And he is sovereign over the growth of the earth and everything in it, including the human population. This is the same God who commands humans in Genesis 1.22 to be fruitful and multiply. This is the same God who says in Psalm 127.3 that children are a heritage from the Lord, a blessing to those who bear them. This is the same Jesus who welcomes the children to him in Matthew 19, touches the weak and the infirm and the disabled and heals many of them throughout the Gospels. That Jesus is a threat to the eugenicist and the ideology that drives it. This is the same God whose world will not be destroyed by climate change. hey because its fate is in his hands. Controversial thing to say, Genesis 8.22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is the same God who, of course, forbids murder, Genesis 9 and in the Ten Commandments, even if it's for the, quote, common good. These ideas rooted in the authority of God and his creation of people as image bearers and therefore of equal dignity and respect lay the groundwork for the abolition of slavery, for the establishment of charities, orphanages, women's shelters, hospitals, universities, and more. And yes, while the authors of the Constitution of the United States may not have uh, lived out these Christian principles completely themselves, since many of them actually own slaves. The words they penned that men were created equal with certain inalienable rights that can't be taken away by the government because they're not given by the government, because they're given by an authority, God who is transcendent, who is higher than the government. That idea planted the seed of liberty and the self-governance to which each human being is entitled that grew into the freest and the most prosperous nation that has ever existed, who in her short span has righted wrongs more quickly than any society throughout history, even with all of our many, many warts. All of this to say, departure from Christianity will always eventually end in oppression. One major form of oppression we are seeing today is the systemic control of population or the effort to systemically control population through anti-natalist and anti-family propaganda, through abortion, through assisted suicide, and a push for mass sterilization in many parts of the world today, especially third world countries. And all of this is helped, of course, by the breakdown of the nuclear family, which I define as mom, dad, children, as well as the fierce push uh, we see for sexual and gender confusion. This is another departure from God's design as we see in Genesis 1, which doesn't just tell us that he made humans in his image, but also tells us that he made them male and female in his image. As is repeated throughout scripture, including by Jesus himself in Matthew 19, a reality that has both physical and eternal significance as we reiterated yesterday. These are biological categories, not categories of, quote, gender identity. They're not social constructs. Uh, gender identity is a concept that we have outlined many times. We've traced back to its disturbing roots in the 1960s. So many of the damaging ideas that we see today are really not new. They're rooted in philosophies and ideas that have actually been debunked. And yet it seems that the people who hold them just continue to double down on them. And once again, 
who is placed on the altar of this cultural change that is the sexual and gender revolution that is trying to upend everything that we know about sex and the family and the importance of the presence of a father and a mother and the definitions of male and female. The people who are placed on this altar are women and children, always. They always are. As I say, often children are always the unconsenting subjects in progressive social experiments, but so are women because women and children are the most vulnerable. Women who are forced into spaces and competitions with men much stronger than them. Children who are being detached from their mother or father through surrogacy and sperm donation to satiate the modern redefinition of marriage. And who are also being detached from their own bodies through absolute hogwash about gender. God's design. And intention for human beings and for the family are for his glory, but they're also for our good, not just individually, but societally. When we move past that, oppression flourishes. The biblical perspective of human beings is that they add value to the world. They don't detract from it. Everywhere we see childbearing discussed in scripture, we see it in a positive light. We never see any directive. Just getting real to put career or travel or plants or pets before children. There's nothing that teaches a person about love, compassion, responsibility, self-sacrifice, forgiveness, and perseverance like parenting. There are few things that show us God's love for us and the immensity of the sacrifice involved in giving up his son to die on the cross for our sake like parenting. Parenting gives you a deeper perspective of what's important as well as what's at stake when it comes to political and cultural change. You're no longer impacting the world just for yourself, for your own comfort, for your own security, for your own bottom line. You're thinking about your grandchildren and what kind of world you want them to inherit. You no longer play the main character in your own life. Your needs, your wants no longer come first. The hopes and the fears that you once obsessed over for yourself are immediately upon the arrival of your child transferred onto them. And toxic mommy culture, as well as many feminists and left-wing politicians and influencers today will tell you that that's a bad thing, that motherhood will make you lose yourself, that marriage will trap you, that divorce for the sake of sheer happiness is worth it. And that you need to find a way to be liberated from the unfair expectations of mothering and marriage to, quote, find yourself. That's a lie. It's a lie. When you become a wife and a mom, that is who you are. Yes, you have other interests that aren't exclusive to marriage and parenting, and that's great. But you don't have some kind of separate identity that's out there that you need to take a journey to find. It's a good thing that your identity and who you are becomes wrapped up in the blessing of marriage and kids. Hyper-individualism in the West has robbed us of the realization that family and community don't take away from who we are, but become part of who we are. God made us, married or not, because not everyone is going to be married, and that's okay, but God made us to be communal, interdependent beings because we are made in His image, and He is in perpetual, eternal communion and fellowship with Himself between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So even if you are not married, even if you cannot have children, and you want to be, or you're feeling alone. Feeling lonely is a normal part of the human experience. And because not everyone is called to be married, and because not everyone is going to have children, God has provided you a family in the church. You are made to be a part of a family, which is exactly what you are adopted into when you come to faith in Christ. The church should do, I understand, the church should do a much better job 
of ensuring that single people are treated as family, cultivating meaningful friendships. Jesus was not married. Jesus didn't have, you know, physical children. So surely singleness for many people isn't simply a waiting period before marriage, but is in itself the fullness of of a gift of opportunity to worship God even more fully. And for those who do not have children, your opportunity to mother is not gone. You have the opportunity to disciple, to teach, to mentor, to influence, to encourage younger generations. And actually Titus 2 commands that of us, no matter our marital status. If you are married and can have children, do it in more ways than one. If you are not married and cannot have children, find a way to engage with the family of God and impact the next generation for his glory. And for all of us, let us fight back against this dangerous, bigoted, fear-mongering, deadly myth of overpopulation and antinatalism. Children are a blessing. So let's push for policies that reflect that. Now, I'm not, you guys know I'm not talking about policies that claim to help children through bigger government programs, which I believe the government, the bigger it gets, the more intense it gets on usurping the authority of the church and the family. So I'm not talking about that. Plus, those programs rarely actually achieve their intended goals or their purported goals. Um, Now, I'm not saying that all government programs are off the table completely, but that's not what I'm primarily talking about. I'm talking about policies that honor the family, which in turn honor the image of God, especially the most vulnerable image bearers, women and children. I mean, it's really no wonder that left-wing ideology has this common theme of sacrificing children, abortion, gender ideology, even COVID restrictions that do not keep kids healthy, but just harm their ability to learn and to develop and to function normally socially, Uh, school closures. It's no wonder they're pushing all of these things. It's rooted. Their entire ideology is rooted in an anti-human, secular humanism, an anti-human ideology that goes back centuries. Christians throughout history have pushed back against it. And today we're scared, of course, to do so because we don't want to be called names. It's hard to go against the mainstream. It's hard to be human salmon going upstream while everyone is going downstream. It's hard to swim against the current. I understand. And quite frankly, it's also because many of us don't know our Bibles. We have no idea why God calls us male and female. We have no idea why God created marriage the way he did. We have no idea the importance of family and childbearing. We have no idea our history. The um, We have no idea about the foundation of the United States. We just don't know. And so we buy into the propaganda. We are in endlessly influenced by the evangelism of the culture and we just don't have the bravery and sometimes the knowledge to be able to stand up against it. But the good thing is that's not irreversible. Our ignorance and our fear is not irreversible. So that's why, as we talked about last Monday, this is the time right now to commit to courage and clarity. God did not put you and your children and your children's children here and now arbitrarily or accidentally. I know that we like to get nostalgic and we like to think about how things were. I wish that we lived 100 years ago. I wish that we lived 50 years ago when things were more sane. I completely understand that. I can relate to that. But I know that God is a purposeful God, that he does things with intention. He does things with specificity. And so if I'm here now, if you're here now, we are supposed to be facing the cultural moral battles that we are facing. Uh, Just as every generation has had their particular challenges, we have ours. We have to be equipped to face them with courage and clarity. Our courage and clarity comes from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God.
nowhere else. The two things that the church needs so desperately today, courage and clarity. And I hope by the grace of God on this subject, I've given you a little bit of that today. Um, All right. I've got a couple more things to say, but let me tell you about our last sponsor for the day. You know them. You love them. It's Good Ranchers. Good Ranchers is giving away 40 free chicken breasts to every order that uses my code Allie. That's A-L-L-I-E. That's $150 value for free. They want to help you kick the new year off right with a box of 100% American, 110% delicious chicken beef and delicious chick chicken, beef, and seafood. Eat better, eat healthier, cook more meals at home, and enjoy loads of flavor with one of their mini boxes. The They are all from American Farms. And you're supporting uh, an American business and Good Ranchers. They're a wonderful family-owned business. I happen to know them and talk to them pretty regularly. They're awesome people. So you're supporting Christians and conservatives, but you're also supporting this American industry of farming and ranching, which has just been demolished over the past few years because we have started to rely more on foreign imports from our meat. So if you care about supporting uh, this American industry and this American company at Good Ranchers definitely start buying your meat from Good Ranchers. Plus, it's just really good. Saves you time, saves you money. That's why we love it so much. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. Saving $150 with this deal is a great way to start off the year. That's GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed that episode. If you love Relatable, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That would mean so much. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube as well. And keep telling me what you want to hear, uh, what you want to talk about over this next week. We've still got a lot of content to cover over the next couple of days. We've got a good interview coming up as well. So excited to get to that. And we will see you back here tomorrow.